Hi, I'm Zara Kazema. I'm one of the behind-the-scenes folks who helps bring this podcast to life. In a world facing climate challenges like wildfires, Canada's National Observer filters out the disinformation and brings you what you need to understand what's happening. Our coverage brings you to the front line of climate action through the voices of scientists, activists, and communities who are fighting for a sustainable future. But we can't do it alone. To continue our vital work, we need your help. Visit nationalobserver.com today to subscribe or donate what you can. You not only gain access to in-depth analysis, exclusive interviews, and groundbreaking investigations, but your support also helps us shape a sustainable future for Canada and the world. Welcome to Hot Politics. My name is David Mackay, and I'm the Deputy Managing Editor of Canada's National Observer. In Hot Politics, I examine who has the best ideas on important issues, especially the climate crisis. This is Episode 15, Unraveling the Canada-China Interference Saga. It started in February with media reports of top-secret leaks from CSIS. That's the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. Multiple sources tell Global News at least 11 candidates received clandestine funding from entities affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party. Over the coming months, a steady drip, drip, drip of reports about China working against political candidates or supporting candidates to influence which party won the election continued. Chinese officials have denied any interference, calling the allegations baseless and defamatory. The allegations have strained relations between Canada and China, this country's third largest trading partner and a major source of foreign students to Canadian universities and colleges. This tit-for-tat played out as predicted. Each country has expelled diplomats. Canada has declared the individual in question today persona non grata. Our government has been clear we will not tolerate any form of foreign interference in our internal affairs. And there were calls for a public inquiry. But instead, in March, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau appointed former Governor General David Johnston as a so-called special rapporteur. His marching orders? To review the findings of two closed-door panels that Ottawa set up to investigate Beijing's suspected interference activities in the 2019 and 2021 elections. Just after his appointment, the Prime Minister's office said Johnston's recommendations could include a formal inquiry, a judicial review, or another independent review process. Johnston's report was released last month. It concluded Chinese interference did not alter the outcomes of the general elections of 2019 and 2021. Rather than settle the issue, the report prompted even more controversy. Opposition MPs passed a non-binding motion for Johnston to resign and for the government to call a judicial inquiry. Then, a bombshell. Johnston resigned. The Prime Minister's point person to handle this new state of affairs is Dominique Leblanc. The Intergovernmental Affairs Minister is one of Trudeau's most trusted cabinet ministers. We have two guests today who will break down the issue of China's suspected interference in Canadian political affairs. First, Jim Bronskill covers security issues for the Canadian press. Jim, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. 
okay, a bombshell on Friday. Bring us up to speed. What the heck happened? Well, as we know, David Johnston was appointed as special rapporteur to look into the issue of foreign interference. He had begun his work and even issued an interim report. That interim report recommended against a full public inquiry. Subsequently, opposition parties who wanted a public inquiry, let's say none too pleased with that recommendation. At the same time, they had been questioning David Johnston's bona fides, particularly his close association in their minds with the Trudeau government. One can debate how close he was, but this became a narrative that would not go away. In light of all this, uh, David Johnston on Friday, as you alluded, said, it's time for me to leave. I took on this job to try to instill public confidence in our democracy in elections, and uh, clearly it was having the opposite effect. So I'm going to issue a short final report before the end of this month, and I hand the ball back to you, Prime Minister. <laughs> so now what? When you and I have spoken about this before, there was a whole process that was supposed to be in place. There would be public hearings. The diaspora community would be invited to talk about how the suspected interference influenced them. And then there would be these two national security bodies that would be set up to look into the issues. Does all of that now go off the table or, or what? To be clear, uh, the government asked David Johnston to look into these issues and make recommendations. And they're saying now and reminding us that, that nothing was ever off the table. David Johnston said, look, I'm, I'm going to do public hearings. I'm going to hear from Canadians on this. I have a very tight timeline, which is not necessarily a bad thing because we need answers in short order. He was going to do that work over the summer and had planned uh, to begin hearing soon. That is now all up in the air, of course, because essentially Dominic LeBlanc, the intergovernmental affairs minister, tells us that, well, okay, opposition parties, you didn't like Mr. Johnston as special rapporteur. You thought he was too close to, to Mr. Trudeau's family. You did not trust him to be in charge of this process. Clearly, you want some other kind of mechanism to look into this issue. So you do it. <laughs> you brainstorm together and come up with an individual that you think would be suitable to take on this task. You set a timeline that would work for you. You set the rules around what sort of classified information can be used in this process and whether it might become public at some point. You figure all that out. Your agreement on these things is essential for any process going forward. Because he did recommend that you really should reach out to the opposition to kind of figure this out, right? That was one of his recommendations. Yes. He said that, that someone should lead this process that has the endorsement of the opposition parties. So Dominic LeBlanc was saying, look, you, Mr. Polyev, Mr. Singh, and the Bloc, get together and figure out what you want, who you want, what you can agree on. And ultimately, it will be up to the government to start in motion any new process because it's the government. But I think the government is setting the cat among the pigeons to some extent. As we know, these opposition parties rarely agree on anything. So, the, you know, not to ascribe motives, but it does put 
some pressure on the opposition, as Mr. LeBlanc says, to be serious, to come up with serious proposals in short order and come back and say, here, here's what we want to do. And if it seems reasonable and acceptable to the government, I think then the onus would shift to Mr. LeBlanc and his ministers to say, look, okay, we can do this. That's the political process that you've described. But there's another part of this process that will happen under a lot less scrutiny uh, away from this the glare of publicity, and that is two bodies that I alluded to earlier, the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, a mouthful, and the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency, another mouthful. Jim, just give us a sense of what these two agencies will be doing while all of this political stuff is happening. Yes, we, we might forget that uh, when the prime minister appointed David Johnston, around that time, he also said, look, uh, we need to hear from the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency, which is the main watchdog over our intelligence community, and also the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, uh, which is made up of MPs and senators and looks into the same kinds of issues, but it's a different body made up of parliamentarians. It does more focused reviews. It was doing two things. Both of these bodies were looking into this issue and also checking the homework, if you will, of David Johnston and and looking at the classified annex that he uh, included in his report to see if his conclusions were reasonable. So that work carries on. How that will feed into everything else we're talking about, we'll, we'll find out. But certainly that process is unfolding in the background. And what would be the purpose of that process in kind of ferreting out some of the issues around suspected foreign interference from the Chinese or the Russians or whoever? Uh, well, these are bodies who have uh, looked into this issue previously. They have expertise. They have staff who know these issues. They have baselines to work from, and they have, of course, access to classified materials and can look at all of this information and figure out to the best extent they can what's going on and answer some questions. They have capabilities that we might see handed to the new rapport tour as well. David Johnston saw some classified information, of course, but these bodies are very well versed in these issues already. So unlike David Johnston, they had a starting point and some institutional knowledge of the issues that will be helpful, whatever unfolds. Okay. Hang on, Jim. I don't go anywhere. I'd like to bring Arthur Wilczynski into the conversation now. Arthur Wilczynski is a senior fellow with the University of Ottawa Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. He's a retired senior national security and intelligence official who has been paying, I would say, very close attention to this issue. Arthur, welcome to Hot Politics. Thanks for having me on. Okay. I got to get your initial reaction to this. Uh, what do you think? Well, uh, there's a lot to digest. First of all, I feel badly for Mr. Johnson because I think that this is an eminent, respected Canadian who has done decades of service to Canada in many different ways. You know, what, the way that he's been treated, I believe, over the past number of weeks and months is unfair. And it, I think it is a form of, quite frankly, political vandalism, uh, not only on, a, on an individual, but on some of our, of our institutions. That said, he did the right thing. Number one, I've always believed that a public inquiry would have been the best way to restore public trust. Because at the end of the day, this really is about trust. That's the magic word. And right now, after the number of months 
of the process that we've had. I think that public trust in our democratic institutions has further eroded at our own hands. It's Canadians that have, I think, done done damage to that trust more so than, than I think some of the foreign actors that we want to examine. That said, we're at a certain place right now, and I think we do need to look about what's coming down the pike and how we need to manage it. So a couple of things. I think uh, Jim talked about a number of institutions that are doing their job, in particular in Syria. So in Syria, it's still a relatively new body. It's, it's only a few years old, but it's built on the work of something called the Security Intelligence Review Committee, which was a more focused review body that really looked at the work that CSIS had done over a number of years. These are bodies and institutions that have a long history of understanding the community, working with the community, and by community here, I mean the national security and intelligence community in Canada, who understand the specificity of their tactics, who have the facilities and the clearance necessary to actually do the kind of in-depth work that is required to retrospectively look at what happened in the 2019 and 2021 elections. Their work is underway. In fact, a few weeks ago, Syria put out its terms of reference around what it is that they're going to do. So they, they need to continue their work. Same thing with the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. But that work needs to take place in secrecy, needs to take place protecting the information, the tactics, and the, and the methods that the intelligence community needs. That's part of the process. We need this broader conversation in Canada about how do we restore trust in our electoral system. And Minister LeBlanc's kind of lob uh, of the issue into the opposition, I think, might be a, an interesting political tactic. But again, personally, I would hope that instead of just sort of saying, okay, here you guys, you've been doing all kinds of nasty things over the past number of months, tell us what you would do. I would rather see a collaborative process where we really try and, and again, this is naive and I know that, but to, to sort of deflate the partisan nature of the conversation, because there's some really serious things that we need to look at. Well, at a news conference on Sunday, conservative leader Pierre Polyev said that he would work with the other parties to get a public inquiry underway right away, saying that it must be headed by someone who is, quote, unquote, independent and unbiased in doing a thorough and public investigation. So do you take a Pierre Polyev at his word? Well, you know, again, as they say, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And while he might be serving up a nice dish, let's see how it actually tastes at the end of the day. Because he's been one of the ones who's been most directly implicated, I think, in the partisan nature of the discussion. Him consistently and without basis drawing conclusions around intent and capability around foreign interference and implying that the prime minister and others are engaged in a nefarious act, again, without the process, is part of that political vandalism that I was talking about. So let's see. I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. But, you know, there's a lot of Canadians who, observing what has taken place over the past number of months, are deeply skeptical that the leader of the opposition is able to rise to that standard. But let's find out. Let's see whether or not they can come up with a name and a, a scope and mandate for uh, an inquiry. But I hope, again, that they do this collaboratively, not just that there's a ping pong back and forth. Opposition comes up with some names. Government says no. Government comes up with some name. Opposition says no. We need to do this together because our democracy is more important than any single partisan actor in this equation. And I really, again, naively but determinedly hope that we can get past this so that we can address those real issues that are at play. Is it possible to find someone who could head up a, an inquiry, a public inquiry? Uh, one columnist called this a poison chalice. 
So again, I say yes. I think that we have dealt with complicated, complex, and partisan issues over the course of our history. That is not, not new. I think, though, that we need to find a process to select an individual or individuals. I mean, like yeah, everyone keeps on talking about one person, but I have no problem, for example, if there's a chair of an inquiry with a couple of other folks that together as an aggregate provide the process with some kind of legitimacy and coherence that's required. And there are precedents for that, right? I mean, you you had the the murdered and missing Aboriginal women, you know, for Indigenous women, for example. Uh, it was a commission, and that was there was controversy there. You had some resignations, but there was there there were enough people at the end of the day to put together a coherent set of recommendations. Absolutely. But my understanding is that, is that there are processes for asking with the consent of of the Chief Justice of a, either the Supreme Court or the Court of Appeal or the Federal Court. For sitting justices to take some time and pursue these kinds of activities. I'm sure that there are individuals who don't have direct either familial or partisan or any kind of links with the leaders of the parties who are sitting judges or who are recently retired judges who have that credibility that could meet the standard. The question is, are they going to be willing to do so? The past has shown us, and again, this is why I'm a little skeptical about Mr. Polyev's commentary. But he's the one and his party is the one that has really attacked the integrity of whomever is associated with the process. And so I could understand people's reticence uh, to do that. People don't necessarily want every single aspect of their of their lives put under that kind of microscope when they want to undertake public service. But I'm sure that we can find someone and we need to. Let me just tap into your expertise here and try to pull back from the politics of all of this. So- which might be very difficult at this point. What's at stake here? Like when we talk about trust in the system, when we talk about foreign interference in elections, this is very serious stuff, disinformation, misinformation. What's at stake here? So what's at stake here is essentially Canadians' consent to be governed by individuals who are selected through a process to represent us. If a significant portion of Canadian society believes that the system is not reflective of their collective wishes, it undermines the consent to govern. And that is foundational in any democracy. So that's why we need to restore trust. And it's not to restore trust to like 50% plus one. We need a broad, broad consensus around our foundations of governance. Part of the process is for Canadians to have a better understanding of what the threat is and how it's evolving. It shouldn't just be retrospective to look at specific instances where individual candidates might have been subject of a campaign of disinformation online. We know that happened. That's that's not a mystery. The question is, like, how do we build the resilience to how the threat is evolving? And technology is changing. Disinformation is becoming more rampant. It's not just the People's Republic of China and the United Front Workers Movement that is a problem. Other actors have been very belligerent in this space. We've heard from, for example, members of the Iranian community in Canada about the the role that the Iranian Islamic Republic has played in the aftermath of the downing of PS Flight 752. We've heard, for example, from Mr. Singh, the leader of the New Democratic Party, about the role that India has played in Sikh diaspora politics. Members of the LGBT community are deeply concerned about the role of extremist right-wing non-governmental actors in shaping the political environment here. This is a complex area, and I think that you know, we haven't done justice to understanding the complexity of the threat. We haven't been effective in communicating to Canadians what that threat looks like and how it's changing 
so that we can, again, build the consensus and that trust necessary to fix our institutions so that when we select our representatives, people have confidence that they actually do represent the collective will of the people of Canada. We are having the kinds of conversations right now about security that I think I'm pretty safe in saying we would not have had even a few years ago. And yet it's been recognized for years that there are severe weaknesses in the system. And David Jostin pointed that out in his work. And I'm wondering whether or not this provides us with an unprecedented opportunity to get this right. Folks like me who have been in the system have been talking about them for a long time around how the producers of intelligence make sure that their information is provided to decision makers in time so that they can then make decisions. Intelligence shouldn't just exist in like a vacuum of, yay, we collected something. It needs to be used to defend Canadian interests. And that part of the system is atrophied and needs real profound fixing. So he's right. And that's some of the things that can come out in an inquiry. Some of the things that, quite frankly, you don't even need an inquiry to do. Just get on with it and fix it. Like we've been talking about this for years. I don't think the inquiry is about the specificity of technical challenges within the intelligence community. That's a small subset. For me, the outcome of an inquiry is, again, around trust. Whether it's trust in the national security and intelligence community, which is not really there. Most Canadians know nothing about the mandate of organizations like CIS. I think a lot of Canadians just don't understand. When I worked at the communication security establishment, and we tried to get a sense of what Canadians knew about us. Less than 3% of respondents actually knew what, what we did. That's terrible. Canadians need to understand how national security works in their interests. It requires greater transparency of those institutions with the Canadian public. And Canada, compared to even our allies, does not do a good job in that. And we need that to change. Now, Arthur, you did mention Jim Bronskill. I'd like to bring Jim back into the conversation now. Jim, welcome back. So obviously, you'll be covering this over for the foreseeable future. Give us a, a roadmap. Give us a sense of what you'll be looking for and what will be happening over the next few days. Well, we'll have to see what the opposition parties come up with and whether they can work together to come up with a proposal that works for them and works for the government to have some kind of process that will accomplish all of the things that Arthur so clearly laid out. And I think a couple of things I'll be looking for will be, okay, what sort of person or people will lead this process? Will they have some expertise in national security? Will they be a sitting or retired judge with a legal background to navigate some of the complex issues around disclosure of classified information in this context? The timeline will also be important and interesting because, as we know, the special rapporteur planned to wrap up his work by October on the orders of the prime minister. It seems pretty clear now that any process selected, unless it's a simple replacement, for Mr. Johnston will extend well beyond that time frame. Remember, a public inquiry, a full judicial inquiry, could easily take two and a half years or more. That would take it, by my math, beyond the timetable for the next federal election. So what is the goal here? Is it to address some of these issues publicly and ensure that the agency is charged with ensuring our democratic processes are, are working smoothly and effectively and, and with integrity in a timely way? Or is it to take our time to step back and say, look, we're going to take as long as we need 
We're going to take a generational opportunity to really immerse ourselves in this and come out of it at the other end whenever it's done and implement some recommendations then. These are questions I think that will need to be answered before we can do anything uh, on this issue and before the government can say, yes, this is a path forward. Arthur, a, a key figure in all of this will be Dominic LeBlanc. In many ways, Justin Trudeau's right-hand man. How significant is it that he's basically given him the task to try to work with the opposition politicians to figure this out? I think that's a good thing. Uh, I think that's precisely Mr. LeBlanc's role in terms of the ministerial responsibilities that he's given by the prime minister. And the fact that he actually is close to the prime minister, again, gives me uh, some level of optimism that we will be able to do this quickly. So I have no issue with Mr. LeBlanc at all. We've ragged the puck for months now. We're not getting further away from a, another election. It's getting really close. And we are in a minority parliament, despite the political arrangement between the New Democratic Party and the Liberal Party. So we need to do this quickly. And Jim's right. I mean, there's a potential there for a long, drawn-out process with an inquiry. And many of the critics of an inquiry have pointed that out, that this isn't going to help us in the short term. But I'd like to sort of say that it is possible from an inquiry perspective to prioritize and issue multiple reports to say what can be done in the short term in order to, again, mitigate specific risks in the short term, while also saying we will come back to you in a longer term in terms of a more robust analysis and recommendations for change in the system. Some of it will require legislative change. Some of it will require a change in behavior or on the part of non-governmental actors, whether they're political parties, media, social media actors, international cooperation. Some of the stuff is not exclusively within the control of the federal parliament. And that's why I think we need that kind of more robust process with recommendations to who can go to those various actors in the short term and in a more thoughtful longer term. One final question for the both of you. As we pointed out earlier in this conversation, you know, concerns about foreign interference and disinformation, misinformation have been with us for a long time. We at Canada's National Observer cover these issues a lot because we know that they're important. So I'm wondering if you think this discussion will make people more aware about the quality of the information they're receiving, especially during election campaigns. Jim, why don't you kick things off? Certainly the debate we're having in Canada now, uh, for better or worse, is highlighting the issue. And I think we're, we're getting a peek under the hood, if you will, that we don't always get. You know, you, you can drive your car and, and not really worry about what's under the hood and, and just rest assured that everything under there is, is working okay. I think now we're getting a look at, at the inner workings of things and institutions in the intelligence community and government have said, look, we're on this. We, we've known about this issue, as, as you suggested, for a long time. We have processes in place. We've been monitoring threats to our elections and diaspora communities and other elements of this issue for a long time. But now it's out in the open and Canadians are naturally asking more questions about all of this. And I think, yes, going forward, as we approach another election, whenever that might be, Canadians, I think, will be more attuned to the, the quote-unquote threat from foreign interference, the integrity of our electoral system in terms of meddling, in terms of the quality of the information, given that we know the messages that we hear in electoral periods and, and before an election can be distorted, can be amplified by bad actors 
I think some of us, uh, and maybe many of us, have known this for a long time. But certainly now, there's no doubt that it, it's front and center. I would hope, as citizens, that Canadians would be even more attuned to these things as we approach another election. I'm hopeful also that, that this will power Canadians to be more critical in how they consume information. Like Jim said, diaspora communities have been talking about this for a long time. And one of the things that we need to understand is their deep frustration that they have not been heard by government, but also that they have not been heard by broader Canadian society. And I think Canadians need to pay attention to, for example, the, the Chinese diaspora or the Iranian diaspora or others that have been the victims of this more directly and who have felt the, the consequences of that interference and intimidation. And I think that the conversation over the past number of months, I think, has raised awareness. I'm worried, though, that the partisan nature of that conversation is putting people in camps of, of empathy, which I think are problematic. So I think that there's a role for experts, there's a role for media and journalists to try and shine that light uh, on the lived experiences of those who are more directly affected. And I'm hopeful that as a function of this controversy and this mess that we're in today, I hope a result of that is actually Canadians pay more attention and are more empathetic in terms of the responses that are required to mitigate the risks posed by foreign interference. Well, there's certainly a lot at stake, which is one of the reasons we wanted to have this conversation, to put it into that kind of context for people so that they just see how important it is. So Jim Bronskill and Arthur Wolczynski, thank you very much for this great conversation. And we'll be keeping a close eye on this uh, situation as it unfolds. That's it for Hot Politics Today. Tell us what you think of this episode or the podcast on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. That will make sure people find us. Hot Politics is produced by Canada's National Observer. The managing producer for podcast is Sandra Bartlett. The associate producer is Zara Kozema. Our publisher is Linda Solomon Wood. I'm David Mackay. Next week, it's Maxed Out with Max Fawcett. See you in two weeks.